Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. In this episode, we put our first CEO in the hot seat. Mark Barone is Chief Executive for Continental Europe at AECOM. This Fortune 500 company is one of the world's largest engineering design firms, employing 56,000 people in more than 120 countries. Its projects are impressive and diverse. The world's longest cabled stayed bridge, the largest greenfield port development, disaster recovery programs, and the tallest tower in the Western Hemisphere. Even a cursory glance at Mark's LinkedIn or Twitter feed will show you this is a CEO who is committed to two-way, authentic internal communication. He is very often on the front line of his business, listening, asking questions, and checking what he calls the vibe of his organisation. I asked Mark about his approach to leadership, what he looks for from his IC manager, how he cuts through the noise in his organisation, and how he measures the impact of internal communication. Now, we touch on a number of meaty issues here, but I do want to explain that we recorded this episode on Friday the 28th of February. So some weeks before the coronavirus really starts to impact us all. And we will be doing a special crisis comms episode very shortly. So with that proviso, listeners, it is my absolute pleasure to bring you our very first View from the Top episode with Mark Barone. Mark, thank you so much for coming into the Internal Comms podcast studio. It's very nice to see you in person. Thanks, Katie. Appreciate being here. I thought we might start with explaining a little bit about your organisation, AECOM. There is a wonderful line on your company website, and I would encourage everyone to go to that website. It's got lots of really interesting documents, insight reports, generally about infrastructure. But there's a line there that says, at AECOM, we're driven by a common purpose to deliver a better world, whether it's improving our commute, keeping the lights on, providing access to clean water, or transforming skylines. Now, that sounds very bold, very ambitious. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what AECOM does and the kinds of projects you're involved with. Yeah, of course. Um, We have a, I mean, I think a very bold CEO in Mike Burke, who is taking that vision to try to bring it to life in the organization. So a little bit about the organization. We currently have 57,000 people working in over 120 countries. Um, We are one of the largest engineering professional design firms in the world. And I think with that sort of scale, um, we can deliver on the sort of purpose um, that's been put out there from an organizational perspective. One of the things that I get challenged with every day is, what does that mean to the everyday employee? How do I make a difference in the world? How do I change things? 
And, and we talk about that you might not be involved in the biggest projects, but you could be involved in a very small project that has an impact in your community. Or you could be doing an environmental impact assessment that will help generate a new kind of development that goes forward. So I think how you contextualize these things and how you get everyone involved in the organization, because not everyone in the organization can work on the biggest infrastructure projects. So, right. so we have a whole range of projects. And, and part of what I think my role is in terms of the communications is, is going out and visiting with people, seeing what they're doing, and putting, helping them put what they do in the context of the bolder vision uh, and purpose for ACOM. It's interesting, actually, because oh, and I noticed that AB, even when we win new work, people might not be on that work, but they're certainly galvanized and feel pride through the organization as a whole winning that work. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the work that you do on the grand infrastructure projects presumably does have an impact on everyone when you celebrate that win or that success or that sort of sign off of the project. Yeah, but I think the most important word you said was pride, mm. uh, because if people take pride in what they're doing, then they will bring their sort of heart and soul uh, to the project. And one of the other key things that I, I think around communication and the whole thing around leadership, and that's I think what this conversation is kind of more about than anything else, is that if you can create an environment where people kind of leave the working day feeling more energized than they started the day with, then... You, I think I'm doing my job right. So, so it doesn't. They don't need to be involved in the biggest infrastructure projects in the world. They could be involved in doing something for their local community. Uh, I was up in Birmingham visiting with the teams uh, yesterday and the, and the day before, and we talked about the social value aspects of things that people were doing in that office. And they were sort of supercharged about it. So it has nothing to do with the delivery of projects, but it has to do with the fact that our office lives in the community and they want to actually be part of that community. And the social value aspects of things is also something that's becoming more important to our clients as well. Let's talk about your workforce mm -hmm. then. Yep. So um, you said 56,000 worldwide. Yep. What's the cohort within continental Europe that you're responsible so for? So in continental Europe, we've got 2,200 people um, spread out over what we call 10 core countries. Um, we have in the past operated in over 31 countries in Europe. So we don't have a large presence in any one particular country. So you have to take a look at what we do in various places. So what we do in Sweden is very different than what we do in Germany or Poland or Russia. And so um, managing the skill sets and moving people around to the projects is is always quite a challenge. And um, I like to describe uh, uh, continental Europe as as, as culturally diverse, regionally spread, but our ambition is to succeed um, collectively. And these are presumably pretty highly qualified engineers, mm -hmm. designers? Yeah. Engineers, designers, architects, uh, you know, geologists, uh, ecologists, along with all the support people that we have, HR, finance, um, and all those professionals. So yeah, a highly professional organization, but it is a people business. We don't really have any assets other than our people. So when we talk about communicating and motivation and all those sorts of things, it's really about getting the most out of our people. Because if our people don't come to work sort of supercharged, then we don't have anything else to fall back on. And in terms of the comms challenge, you mentioned several there, actually, uh -huh. particularly this dispersed workforce and yeah. these cultural differences that exist. I mean, sometimes there can be cultural differences within, an, within a country, yeah. let alone across um, a continent. But I'm just thinking also, you've got that added dimension. Do people come into an office or are some of them actually working remotely from home, from 
coffee shops? Well, I can tell you the coronavirus is starting to change a little bit of oh. that right now. And we can talk about that specifically. So we have site-based people and yes. we have people that will go into an office. So there are certain roles. So some of our designers will work in an office because they need access to the software. They need access to the connectivity, um, those sorts of things. And they might be working on projects where they're connected. Uh, there might be someone in Russia that's working on a project connected to someone in Spain. And so, you know, their, their, their office is, is that. We also have people that live and breathe sites uh, that, that do sort of site supervision work. Our Italy business currently, we are, we are dealing with the coronavirus because yes. we're based in Milan. Uh, we have about 100 people in our Milan office, and we have now figured out how to get those 100 people kind of working um, remotely. I think uh, someone told me we only had four people in the office. Uh, but we're still able to keep things going. So what we're learning very quickly is, you know, how how to operate in a virtual environment and making sure that people have access to systems. And, and uh, you know, we have, you know, protocols in place to deal with other kind of um, national emergencies. But this one is slightly different uh, because it's keeping people away from things versus getting people to gather in a certain place. Oh, and and so uh, I think we are learning as, as a result of it. So it, it varies. It varies greatly. But the... The one thing you didn't mention was language. Um, ah, yes, of course. And I am not a linguist. Um, so there are times when you're presenting and you need a translator. Right. And so I've learned very clearly to keep my language as simple as possible to avoid kind of sarcasm or irony. and those. It doesn't play well in certain areas. And the best bit of advice I got was from our Russian translator. When I started a presentation with a little bit of a joke, she just nudged me and said, we don't get the sense of humor here. Just speak very simply and don't speak for a long time because I have to translate everything you say. And that stuck with me. And, and it means that you really want to keep your messages simple so that people can understand them. Um, and, and you can't rely on the fact that, um, you know, we, we use English as a language across Europe for our business, that people do understand the nuances of your language. You, you can't allow... Um, small things to sort of in, to, to sort of change the meaning. You need to be direct and clear. Right. And, and that's what I've learned, um, uh, you know, over the last 18 months in this role. Do, does your background play a part here? So Italian heritage, born in Uruguay, yeah. grew up in the U.S.? Uh, no, uh, no, I don't think so. I think, well, maybe a little bit... Um, you know, in in my in my family, my mother and father never really learned to speak English, which is sort of an odd thing. And uh, you know, everybody thinks that I'm you know 100% American with some weirdo um, accent here that's that's been twinged. My wife's uh, my wife's English; she's from Yorkshire, so um, so maybe there is a kind of directness that comes uh, from being exposed to her. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think it it's it's a kind of learning thing. Um, you have to identify and learn about the situation that you're in. When I spent about nine months in the Middle East, um, it was it was very similar there. And I think that's what, that's what sort of changed it for me. My time in the Middle East in terms of communicating in a completely different culture and being sensitive to the very different religious aspects right. of it and understanding what that really meant and understanding what was appropriate in an office. So shaking hands sometimes was completely inappropriate with some of the women of, of certain um, Muslim faiths, right? Uh, and, and, it, and, and you do have to almost in some ways become a chameleon yes. in your environment and, and not sort of, you know, stick to your own thing. Understand, you know, what, what message you're trying to get across, what you're trying to do, and then, and then be sensitive to the culture that you're in. And it, for me, it sort of changes every day. Um, being in the Paris office one day versus being in the Moscow office versus being in Stockholm, 
you communicate very differently with the people. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I just love it. It, it just it, It's a challenge for me to think um, how I can do my role in these different environments. And, and I think uh, in one sense, an American accent was was probably would be viewed as not playing well across Europe, but I think my heritage has helped uh, yes. with, with that. Now, just a, even a brief glance at your feed on Twitter or LinkedIn will tell anyone straight away that you are spending a lot of time with your feet on the ground in these localities. You've just come back from a, a European safety, safety tour. tour. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you were in Switzerland, a couple of other countries, Slovakia. Yeah, Is that right? That was a. Uh, we were in Poland, Slovakia, and Switzerland over a, over a five day period. Uh, we visited um, four different sites. Each of the sites was fairly remote. Uh, so you can't really do a fly-in and fly-out visit, and they're they're very important sites. Um, you know, when the remote sites do have their own sort of safety challenges, and my view is is I I can't sort of say that we're operating in a safe environment unless I go and actually look at it. We write then what we call SMOs or senior management observations uh, around these sorts of things, along with the safety visits. We did what we call a healthy start when we start a new project. Um, to, so to make sure that we are looking at the, the right aspects of a project. So um, I, I think that my role is to be out in front of people. We don't have a big cluster anywhere really in Europe. So with that, it's a plane kind of on a Monday and, and another plane back on a, on a Thursday or Friday, depending on, on what goes on. I've been, been living in the UK for the last uh, 20 odd years um, and I've had all these various different international roles, you know, still live in the same place, but travel to, to where it needs to be. It's not necessarily the most carbon friendly way of living, uh, but I, mean, I do have my own personal offsetting approach uh, for that. Uh, what's your personal offsetting approach? That's interesting. So I, uh, I take all my miles from BA, <laughs> log them into one of these carbon offset systems uh, in December, and then pay whatever the system tells me wow. that I need to pay um, for that. Uh, and, and last year was pretty punitive. I think I had 70 BA flights last year um, and, you know, short and long haul. And you can see all the various aspects of that. Um, and so I think we need to take, we need to be conscious of it. So we're, I mean, we were talking earlier about a low carbon travel month. Um, what does that really mean? And, and I think what I'm going to talk to my team about is how we can think of doing things more virtually, taking advantage of, of the software that we have. Because once you've met people a couple of times, then then you can interact uh, virtually. I think if you try to do it the first time, it's very difficult. And I think we do have to also think about client demands because our clients sometimes demand us to go and see them, you know, and whether or not the face-to-face meeting is required for what you're trying to achieve. In, in some ways, it absolutely is. Mm. Um, you know, I'm off to Russia next week dealing with a pretty tricky negotiation, and we couldn't do that negotiation without it being face-to-face because the, the gentleman I'm meeting doesn't speak any English. Right. Um, it will be done via live translation, uh, those sorts of things. And those types of meetings, you, you know you have to travel for. Uh, but other sorts of things, um, we're going to look at uh, how we can do things and, and take advantage of the technology that's available and hope that it works on on the occasions that you need it to. Because <laughs> you and I were both lamenting that the technology, I don't think it's where it should be given where we are in 2020. It just seems very slow and patchy and fragile sometimes. I 100% agree. And I think our staff says that to me pretty regularly really? as as we move things from having telephones on desk to making telephones virtual to um, asking people to communicate versus those things. Um, 
but understanding that you know what we're trying to do um, is in some ways make them more effective. So do you need to spend time traveling if, if you don't need to? Can you uh, get home at a more reasonable time? Uh, those sort of aspects. So there's a balance between the the need to, to be doing things um, you know in a, in a physical way versus I think the well-being aspects of, of or the negative well-being aspects of all the travel that you can impose on people and, and I think you need to balance those things out so what what's clear to me is that you're very comfortable when you're doing these internal visits and meeting people face to face then sharing that externally on LinkedIn and Twitter. Now, that approach, that very sort of inside out approach, um, is that something that just comes very naturally to you? Or is it something you've sat down and thought about quite deeply? Uh, It doesn't come naturally at all. I I received a little anniversary message from Twitter that I've been on Twitter for nine years. And it probably took me six years to sort of get my head around uh, getting around that. it, what what I'm finding, and and I and we talk about the internal communications, is the channels with which you get your messages across are are, are very complex in the work environment. Because when you when you start to think about um, four generations yes. um, in the work environment, um, you know some of that generation wants to have Instagram. Um, uh, Twitter works for some, LinkedIn works for some others, and the good old fashioned town hall is what works for other people. And blending that um, is what you have to do. I could probably post five times as many things as I post. Um, I try to to try to do a, a kind of summary so that you're not inundating uh, people with things and right. talk about a week versus a day or an hour and and keep those messages kind of, uh, I mean, a little bit broad, but that you can that you can um, sort of share more information as opposed to having, you know, a, like a, a Twitter feed that says this hour I've done this and then mm. the various next hour. So. I don't think it's easy, um, and I have struggled with it. As the time progresses, you just think, you know, what do I want people to know? And a lot of people do ask me pretty regularly, what what do you do and what are you yes. up to? Yes. And so it becomes simple. It's like, well, have a look at LinkedIn, and you get a, you get a good feeling for um, what's going on. And also, I think, as I said, the the, the way that our that my business is is spread out. I have to be out there and um, and sometimes sharing this stuff allows people to see that I am in various offices because it's difficult to get around to all the offices on a, on a sort of weekly basis. Just out of curiosity, do you find that that's beneficial to you as well as beneficial to the employees that you're meeting in the sense that you're learning things about projects, about people, about culture that you wouldn't if you weren't with them face to face? 100%. I tend to think about the engagement as the vibe that you get in the office. So when you walk through an office and people come up to you and want to talk to you about certain things, it kind of says that they're engaged and 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 you've created an environment where uh, going up to the boss isn't a big deal. Right. Um, you know, every now and again, uh, people will come up to you and say, will mention something that you put on Twitter, a kind of random one, not necessarily the ones about work, but it's like, oh, uh, that recipe on quince jam, can you give me that, right? Uh, and, and you think, where is this coming from? This, oh, yeah, now I remember. Uh, um, so so I think that's why um, there. I, I try to think of um, the feeds as not only just being work-related. I mean, LinkedIn is, is pretty work-related, but, but Twitter, there are some sort of random things on there 
about um, you know we've got a couple of geese that we've just I noticed put Thel- onto the pond. Thelma and Louise. Yeah, Thelma and Louise. They seem to be settling in nicely. Um, so that's really good. And and I think those are the sort of things. I mean, I hate using the term authentic leadership, but that does make you authentic, and people think you're a real person. Um, you do have some stuff outside of work. Um, yeah. And I tend to not post the ACOM is presenting at this conference um, sort of messages because we have enough people doing that. Right. Um, so, and, th- and that's out there enough. So I try to try to get people to think, how can we get, you know, engagement and, and get that sort of family feeling? Because one of the things that I love about working in continental Europe is a lot of our offices are, you know, 80 or 90 people. And with that, it's like a big extended family. Yes. So when you go to the Athens office, and and you go and meet the team there. It it does feel like a, a family run by Stella, who is our office leader there, and she's like everyone's mother. Um, and you go to you go to the Milan office, and they always bring out the cakes when you come and visit. I know I, th- I think I get spoilt on these things, but it, it does feel like a big family environment. And and if you can create that sense of family and community, we go back to pride. Then then the delivery for our clients improves. It's interesting because you first came to my attention through Mike Klein's work, um, the Happio research, the view from the top, where he asked CEOs what they thought of internal comms. And Mike said, you've got to speak to uh, Mark because you place more emphasis, it seemed, on internal communications than external comms. You're, You're spending more time potentially on internal than external. Would that be fair? Well, I I think you, you mentioned inside out. Yes. So... The internal comms also provide a window to the outside world. Yes. So I can tell you that um, as a result of some some communications, I've received unsolicited CVs. So right. so with that, um, I want to I want to think that we have a great place to work, and I want people to think that they can that they want to come and join us. In Northern Europe, um, the employment market is so tight that uh, trying to get trying to recruit people is difficult. So you have to do things very diff- differently. So. Is is the is the internal comms message? You know, when we talk about our safety tour, um, that yeah, that's an internal comms message. But um, externally, the the feedback that you get from other people actually demonstrates that you want to make a difference. So um, that I, I love that you said the inside out sort of thing. Um, my role is about looking after the people in the region. You know, Mike Burke um, is 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 the our CEO at the global level, I mean, he interfaces with the shareholders. It's his role to be doing that purely outside thing. And, and so you, you, you look at what your role is in a, in your particular, uh, particular slant. So, um, you know, we're regional CEOs. There's three of us that, that look after the region. We work for someone called Laura Poloni who looks after the EMEA region. And I can tell you, Laura is a hundred percent about how we get the most out of our people. And, and having, uh, you know, a female senior leader in, in what is a very tough sector actually brings a different slant to the way that, that you think about engaging with your staff as well. Do you find that? Do you find having a female leader, she thinks differently about internal comms? Yeah, I th- yeah, she's great. And she she actually, you know, promotes the, the, the technical aspects of things. She's been in the organization 26 years mm. and has kind of grown up in the organization from, from a technical position. And so she sees that as very important. 
Um, she also looks at you know diversity and wants us to think about how we can you know change the way that we recruit and the the per- percentages of, of people that recruit. But but she also just is very clear that she does not want us to sacrifice on the quality of the people that we're recruiting. Right. Okay. You said it's a very tough sector then, and I just want to dig into that slightly. Tough because there's a lot of eyes on you at the moment to ensure things are built in a sustainable way in terms of, I don't know, cooling or heating or lighting these buildings. I, I guess that's really, really topical at the moment. Is that why it's tough? You mentioned the labour market. You, you know, that's tough too. It's tough for all those reasons along with the fact that engineering construction is a is a tough environment um, margins are thin right uh, to begin with you you may be working with clients that have real cost pressures yes along with the sustainability pressures contracts are tough so it's it, that's that's what I mean about being a a, a difficult uh, environment and the locations with where some of your projects take place um you know, when you're working in the in the middle of a Slovakian um, uh, mountain range, uh, building a, a 15 kilometer motorway with with your client partner, I mean that's that's not an easy location to work in. So no. so and and we also have um, you know our Middle East business. You know, with when I spent time there, when you're you're going out and taking a look at some stretches of road or some very remote projects, um, those sorts of things. That's what I mean about the the environment being tough. You know, you have the regulatory pressures, you have the client pressures, mm-hmm. you have to meet uh, budgetary and time constraints, all those sorts of things. But it's a rewarding uh, environment because at, at the end of time, you you see yes. the output, right? So yes. there's a building there or a bridge uh, yes. or a dam or something like that. And and I think that's what um, our our younger generation sees as very important that that they're working on something that has a really tangible output. I wonder what challenges that poses internally within your workforce. And I'm guessing one of them must be the generation of, of fresh thinking and bright ideas to overcome future problems. Is that is that a critical part of success, do you think, going forward? That is a critical part of success and how rapidly that thinking evolves in relative to the way that design codes constrain some of that thinking at times. So when you start to think about the, the, the design codes for a bridge or a highway, they haven't evolved as quickly as, as the, the technology is evolving. So I, I wrote a little post on LinkedIn. I don't know if you read the, the infrastructure one where when you take a look at something like a tunnel, um, it might take, you know, five or plus years to possibly build it. And in that time frame, the technology could evolve so much that uh, we could be looking at purely autonomous vehicles. So wow. does, does the infrastructure need to be as big as it currently is if we see technology changing or if we see the, um, the way that the workforce mobility might change? So I, I'm, I'm still at a, at a kind of nods here because you think about infrastructure being linked to economic growth, mm. but... Um, it's really the capacity that the infrastructure provides that, that determines your economic growth. So if you can get a lot more capacity out of the existing infrastructure by using technology differently, then, then you can actually maybe think about the costs that are associated with, with, the, with the money that goes into infrastructure. And that could be diverted into sort of like more social or educational type aspects right. of things. Okay. Because I think the, the smarts and how we use our infrastructure and the intelligence that goes behind it will be more important than, in some ways, the infrastructure itself. 
Right, okay. And we're on a cusp here where this is starting to change rather rapidly. Well, we just had this quite major development yesterday. Yeah, I don't know if you want to, yeah. you feel comfortable because I know you're working on T2, are you? Uh, our UK business is working on T2. And uh, and I think when, when you look at um, something like the, the, the Heathrow development, yeah, I think it would be a disappointment to the industry because you need projects like that and you need projects like HS2 to actually develop and create the engineers of the future. If you don't have these infrastructure projects, then you know what are people going to, to learn and work on and how do you create that more intelligent uh, workforce? But then you, I think you, you need to balance that off the uh, environmental challenges that we're facing. I, I fully respect that as well. So if we're not actually putting together designs that actually meet the um, environmental challenges that that the that 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 we're being constrained by, then that's something that our industry needs to deal with. And so, I, I would imagine that uh, the the Heathrow saga still has um, quite a way to go. Uh, the HS two uh, situation has a quite a way to go. But these pieces of infrastructure actually do more than just provide the infrastructure. They provide great jobs. They provide ways of training and educating people. And we need those big projects to actually create the right, the, the labor force that is educated well enough to then move us forward um, into the more complex uses of infrastructure. It hadn't occurred to me, and it's so obvious, you see the length of time it takes to build these things. And of course, in that time, so much would have changed and moved forward from a technological point of view. Yeah, exactly. Um, so how do you make sure that once it's built, it's not already in some ways obsolete? It's it's a it's a very difficult challenge. Yeah, that's a difficult challenge. And I think that's something the industry is struggling with right now. Mm. And that's where I think we need to start a debate uh, around that um, that whole yeah. thing around how it how it moves forward. Heathrow is probably a, a great example of of this because you could argue that um, you know will will the advent of electric aircraft yes. uh, speed up or possibly hydrogen fueled aircraft which which might actually be more beneficial than than an electric aircraft uh, so so I think what we're seeing with with our clients in the energy sector is they're talking to us about future fuels and future situations. Um, I was in some meetings earlier this week when we were talking about solarization of oh, assets. Wow. And, I was, and I thought, have I missed something, solarization of assets? I was like, no, no, this is a term we've come up with where we want to put um, solar generation on all our assets to make our assets kind of energy neutral. Wow. So that we can then um, continue to do what we need to do from a, from a carbon perspective uh, with with these with these types of assets and these refineries in particular, because um, that won't go away immediately. But um, we need to figure out how to transition these things into more uh, into more viable space. And and that was a that was an interesting thing to be talking to with with an oil and gas company in particular. This is this is fascinating to me because I can just imagine you walking into secondary schools and universities and really turning people on with this who want to kind of solve tomorrow's problems. Well, actually, they're today's problems. Today's aren't they? problems, yeah. But there's a shortage of engineers. There is a shortage of engineers, and and I think what we have to be careful of is we don't create a shortage of work for engineers. Yeah. Okay. Um, so okay. that that infrastructure investment um, that is generally government led needs to be needs to keep fueling uh, in in the UK and across Europe, uh, those sorts of things, um, because you need to create these projects where people get excited uh, to come to work and, and want these challenges. And, and th then there's the whole balance of how you're doing these things in a net zero sort of way. And 
the industry wants to move forward with that. I think um, governments want to move forward with that. And we need to come together in different ways to, to, to move that forward. Um, it's, you see a lot of positive things taking place. Mm. Um, and, and I think there will be changes uh, and, and radical changes that need to, that need to happen to, to make it move uh, much quicker. So the, the advent that you've seen in the changes in the, uh, the automotive industry, the electrification of cars, we're still just in the early stages yes. of that. But there's been some massive movements and, and people are thinking about that very differently. I, I try to think about other, other movements, um, you know, how quickly we've gone from, you know, uh, email being something that was, that didn't exist. Um, yes. I went, I went and talked to some MBA students a couple of years ago. And I said, when I started at, at the uh, London Business School in, in 1996, we had to go to computer um, rooms. Nobody yes. had a mobile phone. And uh, you used, you still used floppy disks to make things work. And in that short amount of a time, I said, I've turned up here. I've, I've hooked my phone up to your Wi-Fi network and dumped my presentation into this. The, and and that that's thing we don't think about, the, the radical changes that have taken place from that perspective. Have we seen the similar radical changes taking place in, in our highways infrastructure or other mm. infrastructure? And we haven't seen that. Now, there are good reasons for it, uh, but... I think when we start to look at the advent of technology and how that will change mobility and, and how it all converges, we will, we will see a different need for a different type of engineer um, out there and a, a different type of urban planner, a different type of mm. – uh, that, and that, that mindset will be coming from the, 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 younger, uh, the younger generation that really will think about the, the changes and how they want to see their own lives impacted. And I guess diversity must play a role in that as well. You just don't want cookie cutter people, do you? You want that diversity. Yeah, I, I try to describe it as sort of curiosity and creativity. Right. Um, that you need to be curious about uh, learning from other sectors and you need to be creative, but you also need to understand the boundaries in which you operate. Right. So, um, a building needs to stand up physically. Yes. A bridge needs to stand up, and projects need to make sense from a from an economic viability perspective. So all those those hard realities that are out there. But uh, diversity comes in many different ways. So you know you have the gender diversity. We'll have cultural diversity. But I, the thing that we also look at is the the mindset. Um, you know, how, how people's profiles and how they think about the world, um, that also brings uh, a different type of diversity uh, in, into the workplace. So there's, there's, there's lots of different ways of thinking about uh, diversity and inclusion, um, not, not just um, the way that someone may, may appear or their, their preferences. So I, th I think that's, that's where the challenges really come in and, and getting that balance correct. I completely agree with you. I think up till now, we've spent quite a lot of time looking at diversity we can see. Yeah, it's that, it's that diversity of thought that's really important yeah. and making sure that your biases uh, aren't impacted by what you see. And, that, and that's another thing that we, that we, um, we do a little bit about and, and we train people on their unconscious biases. So you, you, can, you can sort of sometimes get diversity wrong because of unconscious biases that exist, but you're, you really need to push ahead with the, the kind of changes of thought that are out there. So um, 
I really like it when, you know, uh, we're sitting around in a management meeting and we get a perspective from uh, our marketing um, lead, who's also our internal comms lead, Lucy, who's based in Poland. And, and she'll come up with a completely different perspective right. uh, than the people that are around the table and have engineering degrees. We might have uh, lots of us that sit around the table with engineering degrees and we lapse into the same kind of thought processes and sometimes having that other thought come in and it's not necessarily a, a gender diversity point. It's just a thought diversity point that really kind of gets you thinking in different ways. I like that a lot. Let's talk a little bit about Lucy. Yeah. Because I think the listeners will be fascinated to find out as a leader what you look for from your comms facilitator, advisor, manager. What are you looking for? So uh, we talk about this pretty regularly. I, I expect her to be an advisor. She knows more about comms than I do. So when we put together messages, I ask them to tell me what sort of hashtags you should put on this. We talk about the different uh, mediums that are out there. And we've started to give them a lot more freedom. So we've, we've, we've recently started a, a quality campaign. Um, and uh, the message that flashed up that we sent to everyone in the continental Europe business was, are you in a caring relationship? And, and it said... <laughs> yes, no, or it's complicated. <laughs> and and that, that was the email that everyone received. When you clicked through on any of those things, you got a video from Tom Pitts, who are, who's our COO, that was talking about our client promise and the relationship that we need to nice. build with our clients. I can tell you it was one of the most popular um, uh, click-throughs because people were, um, after, they, after they reported it as a phishing uh, issue, we said, no, it's not phishing. And we didn't track whether or not you said yes, no, or it's complicated on there. We we then were able to to get that message across and a lot more views than would typically happen on that sort of comms. Interesting. So I think we hit more like a 70% view rate when our typical comms is more like is, is sub 50%. Right. So so we've done, we're trying to change up the mix to, to get people to first of all engage uh, with the communications in different ways. And and those are the sort of things that I've let Lucy and her team uh, try to come up with very different ideas on on how on how we uh, do those sorts of like interactions. And it's been great. Um, we've, we did the same thing with um, our ethics and, and compliance campaign at uh, just before uh, Christmas time. We put out a message uh, saying, click here for your free gift. And everyone, when people click through that, they were taken through to the uh, to the thoughts around what gifts you should be giving around Christmas time or what gifts you can receive without having to lodge them into our systems. Um, and that got the message across a lot more effectively than an email from Mark Baroni saying, our, our gifts policy is this, please read, you know, and, the, uh, and those things. Um, we're finding that you need to really change up the mix and you need to do something that is provocative. And so what's happened? You know, we had people complain that they didn't get a gift out of it, right? Um, on the on the on the relationship one, we had people complain that there was a, that we were being intrusive. Um, <laughs> but sometimes I think those complaints mean that people are engaging with it. Absolutely, uh, and, no and you're not doing anything offensive, but you're just trying to you're trying to get people to engage with these messages. Because the quantity of messages that are out there, you, you can get lost. Um, and, and the important ones, you need to find a way to get them through. And how important is it to involve internal comms when you're planning a, a change or a new initiative in the early days to sort of find out how it might land, what people are feeling? Do you use comms in that way as well as a sort of temperature check? Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, our comms team is actually very close to the workforce. Right. Um, so they are members of the workforce. So yes. we try to gauge things uh, with them. Um, if, if you try to separate the two things, you know, running your business and, and the way that you communicate, I think people, you know, will will see that and they just won't engage with you and they won't trust you in terms of the leadership that you're trying to put out there. Mm-hmm. And and creating that trust with your workforce is really important, especially in people-based businesses. And I mean, obviously, communication is a process that involves a lot more than one or two people or, or you and your internal comms manager. Leadership as a whole plays a big part in this. Yeah. There's a an agency called Gatehouse that do a big state of the sector report on internal communications. And I think around uh, 10,000 IC managers respond every year. And one of the things that trips us up all the time is line manager communication. And I just wondered whether you had any thoughts or perspectives on why this seems to be a problem, that why do we feel that I'm, line managers aren't effective communicators throughout industries, across industries? Is this something you recognize as a problem? I 100% recognize this as a problem. I wish I wish I had a solution for it. Um, I think there are, there are multi-tiered solutions. Um, part of it might have to do with the knowledge is power aspect of okay. things and people may not want to share information. Uh, people might not be comfortable with sharing information. And and I think that's why your your message cascade is important and what you expect uh, your line managers uh, to be doing. I think at certain tiers, thing, things work well. At the senior management level, you know, you can see it and, and you see things happening. It's, it's pretty, it's, it works fairly well. It's, it's that middle uh, management mm. level that, you know, maybe disenfranchised with certain sorts of things. They may be managing a team of, of 20 people, um, those sorts of things. How do, you, how do you cut through that? And and this is one of the reasons why I spend a lot of time mm. out in offices because yes. you can cut through it by doing a town hall and inviting everyone in the office. They hear from you um, and then they're able to ask you questions. And then if, if you say you're going to do something for a particular office, and you don't deliver on it, then you're in big trouble. So the actions that I take away from these town halls, you know, we put people on them and, and we start to do things about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that then kind of can maybe break down some of the barriers that you have in that middle area. But but we've recognized that and we're trying to do some training uh, right, for people. Okay. Um, but it is it is tough because I, I think like um, if you think about change programs, there's always the the law of thirds. There's the third a third of the people that will be really engaged and be your change agents. They'll be in all sorts of levels. Mm-hmm. There'll be a third of the people that really don't care, and there'll be a third of the people that you have to you have to battle against. Mm-hmm. And so you you hope that that middle third actually starts to shift to, towards the ones that are engaged, and you can sort of move your change programs forward. And that can be said of any sort of message uh, that you put out there, but. The messages need to be simple, clear, and believable, mm-hmm. um, or you won't be able to affect that um, that middle uh, work, that middle sort of management layer where I think a lot of people say things get stuck, and I, I do mm-hmm. agree. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a, a lot of people in, in my in my situation would think if you could if you could wave a magic wand and fix one thing, that would be one of the things really? that you'd love to be able to fix. Right, right, okay. Do you just out of curiosity, do you have a formal team briefing sort of cascade process? Do you even so rely we have on, um, on a, a sort of a cycle sort of thing? We yeah. have a um, I have a weekly huddle with my team. Yes. 
uh, and that's a sort of informal briefing that we that we just sort of pick up issues on, um, and we look at you know what issues you're facing this week and what support do you need, so that as a collective group we we support each other. Then um, we have a a monthly uh, we call call with our top. It's it's top 100, but there's actually about 150 people that get invited to the call, and we take them through a structured sort of presentation that yes. that that breaks down our strategic initiatives. Uh, we give them an update on performance. Uh, we have something called what's called Pitch 100, where we ask somebody to do a 100-second presentation, and there's a clock on the screen. Fantastic. And, uh, and, and what we've done is we've just finished this thing called our Evolve Training, which is to target our, our up-and-coming managers. Uh, and we ask somebody from the Evolve Training Program to give a Pitch 100 of what they've uh, what they learned from from that training, um, we've had uh, someone do uh, one of the CSR initiatives. Um, we've got a group of um, of young ladies in our Madrid office, uh, architects, and they are working on building a, uh, a dental center um, in their own time for uh, a deprived area of Madrid. Wow! And so we had them present that. So what what we found is that. After we ran our, our updates for about six months, we did a survey to yes. see what people wanted more of and what, what what they wanted less of. And what they wanted more of was to find out about what the people in our business are doing. And so they wanted to learn more about projects. So every month now we do a project profile or a country profile. Um, so last month we profiled the Germany business um, and the sort of projects that take place with that. And then these pitch 100s and the feedback, because it's all done on Microsoft Teams, is really positive. Um, the most, the, the favorite part seems to be the pitch 100. I kind of I keep saying, I'm not going to say much. I'll just maybe just run a bunch of pitch 100s and, <laughs> um, and have people do that uh, to, to do the update. But we run that on a, on a monthly basis. It's the third Thursday of every month. So people kind of know when it is. Um, sometimes we kind of vary it a little bit from a date perspective, um, an hour, and we share the pack. Uh, and then we encourage people to uh, to take that pack and present it to their teams. It's such a lovely idea. It's very simple, but I can imagine why it's so effective. First of all, you've listened to your audience and they've told you what they wanted more of and you've introduced that as a result. Mm-hmm. So that's fantastic. Also, it's that diversity, isn't it? It's those local voices who are talking about something they know they really know something about. So they're yeah. pretty confident at, that they can fulfill this objective of 100 seconds. So I think it's a really lo- lovely idea. So, so you're saying really then the problem is not necessarily with that group, but then how that cascades and how that knowledge and understanding disseminates further into the organization that's the challenge that's the challenge um, right and that is the challenge and i think that challenge becomes a a confidence thing but when the other thing that you mentioned was voices mm. so we've purposefully on our update we probably have 10 different voices on the right. call right right yes so and in an hour's call it's very difficult to coordinate 10 different voices and it's done virtually and you just hope that someone comes off the mute button and all that good <laughs> stuff uh, as you say we talked about the technology aspects yeah, yeah. of things and sometimes these calls are being done i mean the last one i was in krakow airport doing my bit and somebody else had to host so it's, um but you're right how how that message cascades down from you know the the top 100 to the 2200 in the business mm. is is really a challenge and sometimes we use posters near the printer to cascade messages yes um so you have to figure out, you go back to what message you're trying to get across. What's the best way to get that message across? Sometimes it's good old fashioned paper. There are times when, you know, 
for a c- compliance reasons, you need to send out a formal email worded in a certain way. Yeah, and so so I think it's understanding that. Um, and there are times when you know it can be a bit more fun. Yeah, uh, and and what we're finding is the ones that are a bit more fun and a little bit cheeky are the ones that seem to get the biggest responses. In terms of measuring the success of communications, that's notoriously difficult because of the causal relationship. So you can say we ran this health and safety campaign, even if incidents decreased. Can you really prove it's a result of that campaign or might something else have changed that have impacted the results? So it's it's notoriously hard to draw straight lines between things. How do you assess or evaluate the success of any one piece of communication? So the I, I try to think about engagement, but if we go back to the key metrics, we do all this various things. How many people opened the message? How many people engaged with the message? How many people liked the message? How many people commented on it? All those key metrics we, we look at mm. um, uh, pretty clearly. We try to understand which ones work and which ones don't. Okay, sometimes w- whether or not they're sent on a Monday or a Wednesday, um, right. uh, th- those sort of aspects. So all that data is available, but you need to take that data and get some insight from it um, and, and and try to learn from uh, those aspects. So that's one component of it. We have a measure in our business, what we call gained versus lost margin. So it's the value at which you sell a project and the, the, the margin that you expect to achieve mm-hmm. versus the margin that you actually achieve. Ah. So, so I think of that as one of the most important engagement measures that I have. If our teams are delivering against the promises they made to the clients, then I think there's a high level of engagement. Yes. And so it sounds like a horrible financial metric to use as engagement, but it's one of the ones that I look at all the time. Because when you see that slipping, then something's not going right. Either the teams are not doing the bidding aspect of things correctly and, and getting the pricing correct, or we're having delivery issues. Yes. And so that is one of the first metrics I look at every month. And that gives me an indication of engagement because, you know, we can say a safe site is actually a profitable site um, and profitability is looked at from, I look at the delta between the promise that we made internally around the, the, the margin we sold a project and what we're actually delivering. That, that to me is, is one metric and the, the first one I look at when the monthly numbers come out. I love that. So you found a commercial metric that you need in a way yeah. that really is driven by engagement or is at least a reflection of engagement. Or in my own mind, I can correlate that it's it has to link mm. with engagement or pride, those sorts of things. Because if people aren't doing a good job, they might take longer to do a task than than what's mm. expected. And and then that's that comes out in terms of the time required to deliver projects. Because I was going to ask, this works for you particularly in your kind of market because presumably you're selling time. Mainly. Selling time, yeah. Or we're or we're selling a component of time. So a lot of our projects are on a fixed price, but then that fixed price is made up of time that's required to deliver yes. that. So if you have uh, designing task A. You expect it to take 100 hours. If the team takes 110 hours, you have a problem. If they take 90 hours, you have a benefit. Um, yes. So, And then if they deliver at 100 hours, then what you see is you're, you're actually understanding and, and you're getting things kind of right. Yes. So, so that, that whole metric to me kind of demonstrates a lot of different things and, and helps you kind of go and unpick it. And so you can actually take a look at different offices and we have found that in certain offices where we have some change programs taking place or we're doing some reductions, that that metric starts to slip. 
Yes, right. Um, and and it and it does correlate into into the engagement that you have. Um, it's a really simple metric in our industry to look at, and I'm not sure if a lot of people interrogate it closely enough. No, but I think that's fascinating, and that and why it's so important. I tell my guys all the time. The thing is, I can only sell your time, and time's not like fridges. I can't put your time in a warehouse and exactly sell it later. Right. Yeah. Once that hour's gone, it's gone. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I think when when you start to think that that hour is related into sometimes, you know, projects that are really complicated and might have two hundred people working on them, mm. um, the the small things do make a big difference. And uh, and I always try to try to try to take a look at the small things with the teams and say, you, you need to make small little changes and they'll have big impacts. Um, I don't think we've gotten to the point where you can use the 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 what used to be Team Sky or the, the Ineos cycling team to look at the marginal gains aspects in no, our industry. No. But there are certain aspects of that that you can learn from. So right. what are the small things that you can be doing and those small things as they add up because you have so many people involved uh, to, to have a big impact on the business. Uh, do they tend to be quite operational things about the way someone might be inputting data or reporting or accessing something or a meeting structural process? Are, are, are those the kinds of things you're talking about uh, there? Yeah, it's it's a whole gambit of things. Right, the, okay. Those things, the reporting aspects of things, are we putting a burden on teams that um, are having to report things that they don't necessarily need to report on? Are we having too many internal meetings? I mean, it, it's it's a whole it's a whole gambit of things, and you sh- you shouldn't be shy about asking the questions like, "What is slowing you down from doing your work properly?" Um, sometimes it could be an IT issue. So if you have if you have an IT failure and people aren't able to access systems, that causes you a, that causes you a problem. And it, and it could be other sorts of things. Uh, we might have gotten something wrong in the way that we've scoped something out. And we've got some rework to do. And then if that's the case, I mean, that's our own issue to have to deal with. Uh, but then you have to figure out how to make it up in, in other areas. And if you've got the right mindset of a team, you know, a setback is an opportunity to to, to take on a different challenge. If you don't have the right mindset, a step back actually causes you more and more setbacks. Yes. Um, and that's that's what I mean about the engagement component of it um, is how do people respond to adversity or how do they how do they respond to a challenge? Um, some people will step up and think, you know, we need to fix this and we can do it mm. in a very different way. And other people might kind of go into a negative spiral. And and that's why I, 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 I talk about this all being about engagement. Just a slightly pedestrian question, yep. but I feel I ought to ask it, which is about communication channels. Because um, we live in a world, I think, for many years where internal channels didn't quite have the level of sophistication that external channels have. So, and it's obvious why. What do you find works? We talked about email. We talked about town halls. Is there any, do you lament the fact that we don't have the channels we could have? Or is there something you're using or seeing that you're quite excited by? I think the four generations in the workforce means you have to think about your channels for those different audiences. Certain generations, like I said, will be, they'll expect us to communicate via Instagram. I still kind of struggle with that from Mm -hmm. a work communications perspective, uh, but um, you know, I'm in my fifties now, so that might be a, a little issue that I have to overcome differently. <laughs> Some of us uh, expect us to use internal channels, like if you're communi- communicating something that's a little bit more sensitive, that you you can't do the the inside out sort of thing on. We have a we have our own internal communication channels. It it's so hard because there there is not one size that fits all, and you sometimes have no idea what's going to work. Right. So we sit down, um, I sit down with Lucy, I sit down with other members of, of our Continental Europe leadership team, and we talk about different ways 
And we shouldn't be frightened to try different things because sometimes something touches a nerve and it works really well. There are other times when you think, oh, that looks great. And then, you know, six people looked at it in the business <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and it gets, it gets frustrating. But what, um, you go back to the, one of the characteristics for, um, our, my internal comms team is I want them to be resilient. Right. Because when something doesn't work, I want them to kind of bounce back and think, all right, what are we going to do next time to make it work? Yes. Um, and they are very resilient. Uh, that's that's what I love about that team. Um, it's a it's a great team. And like I said, I, I live in the UK. That team is based in Poland. And, you know, this, the, the stuff that comes out of that team is, is fantastic. No, it's great to hear. Really good to hear. I think because of 2020 and that turn of a new decade I've been reading various articles about the role of the CEO and how that might be changing in the year in the years to come and I just wonder whether you have any reflection not necessarily about CEOs but just leadership in general when you look ahead to motivating guiding inspiring developing strategies how is the role of the leader changing inside organizations so and it will depend on the on the type of organization. So I think about a people based organization, which I'm I'm fortunate to to be in charge of. It's how we sort of simplify things for everyone. So I'll I'll whenever we go through the strategy development process, I will say to people, any idiot can create a hundred page strategy document, right? And it's very easy. I said it takes a lot more sense to take that strategy document and bring it down to 10 pages. Yes. And it takes a lot of thought and care to make it one page. <laughs> yes. Now, if you're really good, then you can capture the imagination of a lot of people by getting it onto a coffee mug or a baseball hat. I am not a big fan of Donald Trump, but he galvanized a movement by his Make America Great Again. I hate absolutely saying this, right? I'm not a big fan of Brexit. You know that from my posts, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the conservative party created the Get Brexit Done campaign. And by doing that, they created a strategy that motivated a certain level of people and they absolutely crush their opposition. Yes. So if you think about what the objective of strategy is, the ultimate objective of creating a strategy is to win. So um, my view is how do you create a strategy that is simple to explain and gets people to understand that they're in a winning position? So our strategy fits on a page. I, you know, I'm not gonna disclose it, but it's, it's, <laughs> it fits on a page. It's made up of about 10 words. Wow. Um, and. And then when we take our communications, we have four pillars of our strategy, shape, perform, collaborate, engage. Those are the four pillars of the strategy. And each one of those things is explained in terms of the actions that we're doing under those. And we try to make it really simple. Um, and that's important from what we talked about earlier, that you're trying to communicate this to multiple languages, multiple different cultures, um, mm. those sorts of things. And then people need to believe you. So when you go <laughs> and you say that you're going to do something, you need to you need to deliver on it. So I think the um, you know, the role of the CEO in one sense is 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 sort of kind of the, the you could say the chief visionary officer, um, along with uh, working with HR around the the people components of things. Um, I think people want to know that they they work for a group, a company that 
that is authentic and has a purpose. So that's one of the things that when we talk about Mike Burke setting that purpose out there, but then how they fit into that. Uh, a graduate engineer might not might not be able to say, how do I change the world? Uh, but if you tell them that, you know, the way that what we need you to be doing at certain stages in your career is, is explained this way. So there's the transparency and creating that trust. And, and I think there is something about creating movements um, mm. and then how you create a similar type of, you know, movement outside of business as you can inside a business. And you can only do that by by looking at the way that you communicate and that you engage with people. But it does suggest to me that what you're talking about is leaders of the future who are more than technical experts. So my observation would be over the last few decades or maybe even for the last century, who have risen up through the ranks have been the authorities and the experts in a particular technical field, potentially. Whereas what you're talking about is a set of people who maybe have more um, emotional capital, emotional intelligence, who can connect with people, who can distill complex ideas down into a compelling thought and then communicate it with openness and honesty and get people on board and behind them, essentially. That's a slightly different set of skills, isn't it? Yeah. But when it comes down to it, you need to your leadership style needs to be based around the strengths that you bring to the leadership role that you're in. Mm. So if you're not a technical expert, then to try to position yourself as a technical expert in an organization means you will fail. If you are a technical expert, you might be able to use that style to galvanize people in a different way. So what I'm saying is use your skill set. For me, I I trained as a civil structural engineer. I haven't done that for a very long time. Um, I couldn't get the respect of my teams by trying to go and talk to them about what they could be doing from an engineering or technical perspective. So I'm trying to use my strengths in terms of the way I communicate, my strategy skills, my other sorts of things to to position you know my leadership style in the way that works for me. Right. And so I think what what leaders need to do is is take a look at themselves. Yes. And and think hard about what they can bring to a leadership role and be authentic about that. And don't try to do something or position yourself in a way that that you're not capable of, of positioning yourself. Mm. So that that's a hard thing for people to do is kind of assess what they're really not good at and say, I'm not going to do that, even though people might expect me to do these sorts of things. So leadership is a really personal thing and and people will see through it very quickly um, if, if you don't bring that sort of authenticness or, you know, authenticity, whatever term you want to use to it. And I think in people-based organizations, people want to know that, you know, their leader is is in some ways, you know, looking after them and creating the environment. Um, I was asked yesterday by some graduates, you know, what 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 I thought my job was, and I said, I think my job is to create a culture and environment where people can thrive. I said, that's my job. You know, uh, I can't I can't design a building for you. I can't design these other sorts of things. But if I can create the environment for you to thrive, I think I've done my job well. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about that answer, though, does it also suggest that, because you said it's it's deeply personal and you've got to start looking at yourself first and base it on who you really are and what you really believe in and what you're really good at. Is that where mentoring and things like that come in for leaders, where they're given a safe space to talk through what works for them, what doesn't work for them, what they're worried about, what they're really good at? I mean, I, I don't know whether you have a mentor, but have you seen do you do you, do you see that being part of the solution? I I do see that as being part of the solution. I don't have a mentor now. I have in the past. Um, I think that 
that whole concept of safe space, uh, a lot of people are smart enough that they can create their own safe spaces. Right, okay. Um, and and how you test these things out, I think you're, if, if you create a really good team around you, right. then um, you need to, to test things out with them. So yes. I will test a lot of things with, like I said, we talked about Lucy, and then Joe's uh, our HR director, and Joe and I spend a lot of time uh, talking about various things in terms of how we want to look at um, the people aspects of things. Patricia is my finance director, and then we, we talk about the, the way that, that we need to present our results in the way that people can understand them. Right. Uh, because you can present lots of spreadsheets and numbers, and people just don't get that. So, so you know, what are the simple traffic lights uh, that you need to have out there? You know, I'll talk about Alicia, who's, who's our chief counsel. So there's like four women that are a key part of my team. In my little WhatsApp group, I call them my my executive advisors that I have with them. Um, so it's it's funny, but then, you know, the way that I deal with uh, Gert and Roberto and Javier and, and Yan, who are dealing with more operational uh, type things. Um, but our team is, has been through a journey. And, and, I, and I think right now we're in a safe space with each other. And uh, the various things that we talk about uh, in our meetings are very different than they were 18 months ago. So we can be very open, we can challenge, and we sort of move forward together. We've concluded, um, based on the, the turnaround that we delivered last year, that if we work as a collective unit and we support each other, we will be successful. If we get into our silos, that's when it starts to no. fall apart. Mm, yes. And for a lot of organizations, breaking down those silos once they've exactly. built up is so hard, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Would it be okay if we move to those the uh, rapid quick, fire the rapid fire? They yeah. don't have to be rapid answers. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so the first one is, what would most surprise people about Mark Barone? <laughs> so I wrote this down. Um, I'm generally kind of a shy person. Um, and I have to work really hard about this. And I, with the communications things, with the, with the, um, you know, this putting stuff out onto Twitter and LinkedIn, it, it's really a stretch for me. And so it, it pushes me. So I think a lot of people see me as a kind of extrovert and I, I mean, I work really hard to do that. And, you know, when we do our town halls, I rehearse my answers a lot, right? You know, and I spend time practicing the kind of and and figuring out what the questions will be, so that it comes across um, as naturally as it can, so to, to prevent um, you know looking like you're you're nervous on certain things. I think there is certain things that if you know something's coming up, you need to practice and and do that. So I think that would be one thing that probably surprises people. But I think what I've learned over the years working alongside chief executives is. Beware the one that's overconfident, because that's the chief executive who, in a um, a select committee, we won't name names here, will shoot from the hip, completely go off script, despite the fact you've given him the the Q and A document, because they haven't sat down and really thought about what they're going to say. Yeah, I I tend to think of my role as being more of a, a servant sort of leader. That I I have a group of people that it's my role to look after, and and. Humility is really important, um, especially when people are performing very challenging, technically uh, difficult tasks that I can't do myself. 
So I, I can't actually be arrogant around the certain aspects that I'm asking people to do in my business. Uh, but then I think there's also certain things that I do that I think people would struggle with. So, yes. so that's why we balance off these strengths, what, you know, what you're good at and what mm. you're not good at yeah, and, and then focus on those areas. If anyone's interested in that approach, there's a fantastic book by a guy called Edgar Sheen called Humble Inquiry, but it's all about leadership through asking questions. Oh, that's great. I'll, um, I'll have yeah. a look. I, I, the leaders, I'm sure listeners will love it. So what one book, journal or website should all leaders read? The only thing I read every week is the front two pages of The Economist, the business section and um, and, and, the, and the world news section. Otherwise, I, I try to digest lots of different things. I'm really enjoying some of the content that Fast Company puts out. Mm. Um, it's been really, it's been really great. I was really pleasantly surprised with the way they transform, transform themselves. I think you need to make sure that the way you curate your news feeds is balanced, uh, because if you're not if you're not careful on the way that you curate a news feed, you you kind of get one view of, mm. of a of a political or a technical uh, discussion. So there is something around that. Um, so make sure that you open yourself up to different perspectives. I also like to read a news article from the perspective of the Times, the Mail, the FT, and and see what the different biases that yes. are out there are. Because I think we have to recognize that there are biases in the way that things are reported and and trying to get that balanced view is really important. So I think if you focus on one uh, article or book, I think you might be curating your own bias. And what you need to do is kind of look at things from multiple perspectives. Yeah, love that answer. So here's one question that sometimes people find tricky. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail? So I had to think really hard about this. Um, I like having the fear of failure in the back of my mind because it sort of pushes me. So if I had a work ass, work thing to do, which I knew I couldn't fail on, I don't know if I would try hard enough. So um, the one thing I've really failed on recently is, you know, my physical well-being um, I would like to lose some weight. So if you can give me a way of magically taking a stone and a half off, that would be fantastic. And that would be where I would really not like to fail. But I have been failing miserably on that aspect of life. Well, my personal trainer, shout out to him because he's wonderful. Anthony would say that you're right. So if you had something that was really scary, so for example, he would say if you had some health scare, that's the fear of failure would drive different behaviors and habits. And I, maybe I need to go and listen to him and have one <laughs> session with him. I will take his business card from you later. <laughs> yes. When you think of the world's best leader, alive or dead, who comes to mind? So in a similar way to curating a news feed, I think I take a look at leadership from various different perspectives and try to learn from the different things that are out there. So I like to consume lots of information and let it mill into my mind on how that's in there. So, you know, uh, from a political leader perspective, I really respected Obama. I thought that, um, you know, what he did was fantastic and the way he was able to, to galvanize a nation. There are certain things that you can learn from Donald Trump and Boris Johnson as well. Um, I don't necessarily like them, but I kind of respect uh, the sort of things that, that they've been able to do. Um, on a 
on a on a more technical perspective, you take a look at the the difference between the way Steve Jobs approached um, the the development of technology uh, compared to the way uh, Bill Gates um, and uh, created uh, Microsoft. There's things that that you can learn uh, from all sorts of of different different perspectives. So, I, I I don't know if I have anyone that I could point out as being the uh, the world's best leader. Um, I think. Everyone has aspects that that they can that that they bring to a leadership role. Um, what I see from really good leaders is they play to their strengths, and they know exactly what they're good at, and they use that to to sort of galvanize and create movements. And if you can create a movement, it's fantastic. Greta has yes. created a movement. You know, uh, a sixteen-year-old uh, that's been able to do that. I mean, she's a leader. Um, and, and, and in a very uh, different way, mm. um, you know, so and, and there's things that you can learn with the way that, that she's done things. So I think there are, you know, the uh, evaluating leadership is, is to my perspective is all about learning, but then figuring out how you take those learnings and apply them in a way that it's comfortable for you because you cannot be someone else. No. And then no. that's the most important thing is how do you consolidate those learnings into something that really works for you? And we go back to that, you know, being introspective and understanding what you're good at and what you're not good at and how you can take these things and actually uh, make them make them sort of you know, live and breathe and, and be part of your own leadership style. Mm, absolutely. Part of the answer, though, plays into a blog post I read of yours about strategy. And you talked to the, about the importance of curiosity. Mm-hmm. So I can see uh, the element of your curious nature coming out in that answer where you're sort of saying, well, you know, how do all these different people make leadership work for them? Yeah. And understanding that is part of the answer. But I think the, the component of that was around the curiosity is one component that forces you to make choices. and But curiosity is also something that has to force you to generate insight. Yeah. So um, one of the problems that we have now is you can be curious and generate a lot of data and a lot mm. of information but what you need to do is be able to distill it down into something that creates insight for, for yourself and then how you take that insight and project it to possibly a group of people, yes. which I think is really important. Yes. Speaking of someone who reads a lot of engagement surveys, there's a big difference, isn't there, between data and intelligence? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So finally, what message would you put on a billboard for millions to see? So. I went and looked at your Twitter feed and got frightened when um, I saw that you actually put these on billboards. We do. Uh, I did. Um, <laughs> so I thought about this very carefully. We've talked a lot about simplicity. We've talked about a lot about uh, focus. And and maybe I'd just say, if you keep it simple and real, then you got a really good chance for success. That sounds fantastic. Mark, thank you so much for appearing on the Internal Comms Podcast. No, thank you very much. It's been great. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. To find out more about the books and the other resources Mark and I mentioned, head over to the show notes at abcom.co.uk slash podcast and you'll find everything you need there. While you're on the site, you might like to sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called I saw this and thought of you. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. If you did enjoy this episode, it'd be great if you could give us a shout out on social media, or you might even like to blog about the show. 
and to help make us more discoverable for other IC professionals out there, I'm told the best way is to simply give us a review on iTunes. So that would be great if you could do that. Thank you. We have some fantastic guests coming up for you. Listen out for my second interview with Rachel Miller and the IC luminary, Bill Quirk. Just hit the subscribe button today. All that remains is to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms podcast. And until we meet again, my lovely listeners, remember, it's what's inside that counts.